millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, and welcome to Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. And I'm Naz Modirzadeh. Today, we're going to talk about the United Nations, Last week, Antonio Guterres made his bid for a second five-year term as Secretary General. His reappointment looks like a formality. There are no serious rivals for the post, and Guterres is on pretty good terms with all the UN Security Council's permanent members, which means none of them is likely to veto a second term. Guterres has had a tough first term. Much of his energy was focused on managing the Trump administration's unpredictable and often destructive approach to the United Nations. Guterres also struggled to deliver on his initial promise of a, quote, surge in diplomacy for peace. There have been some successes. The recent UN-brokered peace deal in Libya, the UN helping end the crisis in Bolivia last year. Overall, though, the UN has led few successful peacemaking efforts over the past five years. We are not yet all pulling in the same direction. That needs to change. Let us reject the influence of nationalism, populism, xenophobia and racism and fight attempts to weaken multilateral institutions. We need to reaffirm the importance of international law and the rules-based global order. And we need the United Security Council to fully assume its responsibility as a guarantor of international peace and security. It's a difficult time for UN diplomacy, which partly explains why Guterres has struggled. Relations among major powers on the Security Council are fraught. Generally, China, Russia and the US can agree on mandates for UN peace operations in Africa. They can agree on sanctions against Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, but they can't agree on much else. And if we look at some of the big crises over the past half year, the war in Nagorno-Karabakh, the coup crackdown in Myanmar, the brutal war in Ethiopia's northern Tigray region, the council has mostly been absent or ineffective. Guterres faces other big challenges as he gears up for a second term. With the US pulling out troops from Afghanistan, the UN could be left holding the can. Guterres will also have to work out how to withdraw peacekeepers from places like the Democratic Republic of Congo, which the Security Council is impatient to do, without triggering more violence. More broadly, UN peace operations are struggling to adapt to wars today that tend to involve more meddling outside actors, 
and jihadist militants that, in principle, it's difficult to negotiate with. To talk about all this, we're joined by Richard Gowan, Crisis Group's UN Director. Richard's one of the world's top experts on the Security Council and the UN more broadly. Richard, really fantastic to have you on. Thanks for having me on the show, and you're much too kind. So, Richard, let's start out with your assessment of how Guterres did in his first term. What do you think? Well, I think we have to remember that for most of his term, Guterres has simply been in political survival mode. His number one priority since 2017 was ensuring that the Trump administration limited the damage it would do to the UN. And while the Trump team did a lot of harm to the multilateral system, and to UN agencies. I think Guterres does get some credit for holding back the tide. He actually built quite good personal relations even with Trump himself. The other major challenge uh, for Guterres has been the rise of China at the UN. And in the period of his tenure, Chinese diplomats have become much more influential, much more assertive in the Security Council and in other UN organs. That has got the US nervous, it's got other Western powers nervous, and Guterres has had to try and navigate between Beijing and Washington. Overall, he's done okay, but this context means that he's always been on the defensive. He's been very quiet on human rights. He's been very nervous about offending the Americans or the Chinese. And that means that his impact globally must be less than what he had hoped when he ran for the post. So more specifically, and taking into consideration your sense that he might be a sort of a a careful pragmatist on some of this, how do we rate him as a peacemaker in these past five years? Guterres has really trodden extremely carefully around conflicts and peacemaking issues. He hasn't been a secretary general like Kofi Annan, who really tried to dive in to solving wars. Instead, highly conscious of his political circumstances, he's held back from big diplomatic initiatives. He has worked a lot behind the scenes in many conflict situations, talking to the leaders involved, talking to mediators, heads of regional organizations. But he hasn't wanted to put himself at the centre of many conflict resolution efforts. He, you know, he made that very clear uh, last week when he made his pitch for a second term to the General Assembly, you know, really emphasising that he is working a lot behind the scenes, but he, he doesn't see the value of big public pronouncements about most conflicts. I, I think that's justifiable, but I think that as a result of his caution, you know, the UN's prominence in international peacemaking has continued to shrink over the last five years. And that's something which a lot of UN officials who are very nostalgic for figures like uh, Kofi in particular do complain about. So Richard, let's come in a moment to why Guterres has been so cautious. But could we talk first about a couple of places where he had, or the UN under his tenure has sort of had some success. And that's the first one was in Libya, which we mentioned up top. And the second, working with the European Union and the Catholic Church in Bolivia during the electoral crisis 18 months ago. What do you think those successes say about Guterres and and the UN more broadly at the moment? Well, Libya was an unusual case because it was one place where Guterres did make a personal effort to promote peacemaking back in 2019. But that really backfired for him. Uh, Guterres went to Libya in early 2019 
and pretty much as he arrived, fighting escalated very badly. And it was something of a humiliation for him that he wasn't able to halt that escalation. And so actually from 2019 onwards, Guterres hung back from uh, peacemaking in Libya. Strangely enough, the UN started to make progress uh, last year in getting the Libyan factions together, basically after they exhausted themselves on the battlefield. And in late 2020, uh, the UN was able to engineer a ceasefire and a political process in Libya, which has turned out rather well. But in that situation, it was really the UN guys on the ground, and especially a UN official called Stephanie Williams, who made the difference. Guterres held back after his negative experience in 2019. In Bolivia, again, it was really a matter of putting the right person on the ground. Um, Guterres sent uh, Jean Arnaud, uh, a very experienced UN veteran, uh, to mediate in Bolivia's election crisis in 2019-2020. And Jean built close relations with all the main political parties. The UN election division helped run a, a poll last year that was generally seen as credible. And that at least temporarily eased the crisis. Richard, so you know, you made, we mentioned these two successes, but as you say, overall, and you've actually just published a great piece on this recently, overall, Guterres has been quite cautious in the last five years in his sort of diplomatic efforts to bring wars to a close, to prevent conflicts. What do you think explains his caution? There are a couple of factors. And one is that when he has invested some political capital, as in that trip to Libya, which backfired, it hasn't really paid off. But I think there are broader factors at work too. One is the overall geopolitical scene. Guterres doesn't believe that the Security Council, given all its internal divisions, will really back him up in many peacemaking efforts. And, you know, he's been notably hands-off on Syria, for example, because he's very aware that US-Russia tensions mean the UN has a limited role. A second, slightly more positive, I think, element of this thinking is Guterres actually believes there are actors other than the UN who have a greater chance of peacemaking in many areas. And he's specifically very committed to the idea that the African Union and other African organizations should lead in peacemaking um, on the continent. And he's really insisted that in places like Sudan, uh, after the, the coup that overthrew um, President al-Bashir, the UN shouldn't rush in, the UN shouldn't claim a lead in trying to lead a political process forward. Instead, it should attempt to be a best supporting actor, if you will, providing technical advice to the AU, providing diplomatic advice, helping with development issues, but leaving the Africans in, in the lead. And that's been a big, big part of his philosophy, I think, as a Secretary General. So Richard, much of what you've written recently explains that Guterres may be uh, being a bit reticent or careful in part because, as you say, he reads the Security Council as not ready to back him and he reads geopolitics right now as quite divided. How much is he right in that assessment? Well, it would be hard to look at the geopolitical scene and say he's wrong. I mean, clearly, the Security Council is very fragmented, although it is worth saying that you see a lot of commentators saying the council is paralysed and that we're back in a Cold War. That isn't quite true. Uh, the level of paralysis in the Security Council is not yet comparable to the worst periods of the Cold War. In 1959, the council passed a single resolution in an entire year. Now the council passes a bunch of resolutions every week. 
So, you know, it is still possible, as Richard said in the intro, for Russia and China and the US to agree on things like mandating peacekeeping operations in countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, so we're not looking at total paralysis. But it is true that when you have crises such as those in Ukraine or Syria, or most recently Myanmar, which touch on the direct interests of members of the P5, it is almost impossible for the council to do anything. And I think that very much affects Guterres's thinking. And he doesn't seem to believe that through his own personal diplomacy, he can resolve those issues. He, he doesn't think that he's a figure like Dag Hammarskjöld back in the early Cold War, who could strike deals between Moscow and, and Washington. He, he doesn't feel he has that political space. And so he is very cautious. Richard, you talked a moment ago about the difficulties that the Trump administration posed Guterres in his uh, first term. C can I push on that a little bit more? On the one hand, you sort of had these years where Nikki Haley, I mean, it seems a long time ago now, but you had Nikki Haley as the permanent representative of the US for a while. She seemed to get along okay with Guterres. She seemed quite empowered. She, in some ways, sort of delivered the North Korea sanctions that were part of the brinksmanship on uh, the Korean Peninsula crisis. In some ways, Guterres even seemed to agree with US desire to cut peacekeeping budgets. So that continued for a few years. But, you know, then you, of course, as you said, you had the, the obstruction in the Security Council, the one-upmanships with China and some quite toxic relationships. But, I mean, do you think it was really a departure from previous US administrations? I think it's fair to say that the US was not as destructive in the Security Council as it was in other parts of the UN system. The parts of the UN system that the Trump administration really set out to damage were the Paris Climate Change Deal, the Human Rights Council, and then last year, the World Health Organization. And the US was never uh, quite as aggressive in council affairs as it was in some of those other areas of multilateral engagement. I mean, I think what most diplomats in New York would say was that after Nikki Haley left, it wasn't that the US was incredibly nasty. It was just mainly missing in action in council debates. And, you know, even on issues like Yemen, uh, you know, which were high on the council's agenda, US diplomats sometimes could not get instructions from Washington about what they were meant to say in negotiations. And there was just a general sense of drift. Uh, one European diplomat said to me that they felt the US was on mute in 2019 and 2020 in the council. And so it wasn't all malice. And actually, Kelly Craft, Nikki Haley's successor, was relatively personally popular with her counterparts um, amongst UN ambassadors. But there was just this awful, awful sense of apathy and disdain for what the UN could do. And then just occasionally on issues such as the Iran snapback, the US would suddenly get very uh, aggressive and alienate uh, even close allies like the UK. So Richard, now the Biden administration is looking at the council, is looking at the UN and perhaps even multilateralism more broadly and and trying to figure out how to how to sort of rebuild. What do you think is the best approach for them to take? I mean, what we see in New York is the Biden team are being very pragmatic. During the transition, there were some uh, people in democratic circles who wanted the US to really mark its comeback at the UN by, for example, laying down a big resolution about international cooperation on fighting COVID 
or possibly a resolution on, on fighting climate change. And Biden and Linda Thomas-Greenfield, his ambassador here, didn't take that approach. Instead, they've been focusing on trying to get wins on a couple of specific crises. And I think that Thomas Greenfield really wants to show that the US is willing to do pragmatic diplomacy in areas which the, the Trump team might have ignored. So on Libya, uh, the US has taken a, a very pragmatic approach uh, to dealing with the Russians and others on setting up a, a ceasefire monitoring mechanism. Uh, on Myanmar, the US and Chinese have really worked very hard to avoid a public split in the council. And instead, they've been putting out a series of statements calling for an end to violence in Myanmar that are, that are weak, but at least everyone can agree on. Yeah. And we've seen something similar on the, the Tigray crisis in Ethiopia too, where Thomas Greenfield pushed very hard for the council to call for improved humanitarian access to Tigray, but was willing to accept a, a council statement that was a lot, lot softer uh, on the Ethiopians than the US would have liked on its own. So this is the, the pragmatic tone we're seeing. It's, it's sort yeah. of showing that the US can do diplomacy again um, after a period where it just typically was either missing in action or was grandstanding. And that approach is kind of sensible, right? I mean, if you think of crisis management today, much of it hinges on the US, Russia, China being able to put aside their disagreements in some areas or even you know, their strategic competition more broadly and find areas where they can actually work together. Well, I think it's interesting that the Americans, Chinese and Russians are managing to cooperate in the council at a time where, you know, actually overall, the decline in their relations seems to be speeding up in some areas. So the US and, and Chinese, you know, the initial contacts between Biden's team and Xi Jinping's uh, team, you know, have been very, very spiky indeed. But that hasn't stopped cooperation in New York on Myanmar. The Russians seem a little less willing to play along. Uh, the Russians uh, continue to be very, very combative, I think, in their approach to the US. But even they have recognized that it would be you know, foolish to just block all early American initiatives on issues like Myanmar for the sake of it. They do realize that they have to build some sort of functional relationship here in New York. So this sort of has a, a follow up question. If, if you're a Western diplomat at the moment and you're sort of trying to work through the council, you're always sort of confronting a bit of a dilemma in how you pitch your sort of ambition of what you're trying to do with Russia and with China. Are you aiming for something ambitious that then risks a veto or do you sort of try and keep consensus, but then end up with something that's largely meaningless and sort of renders the council just as irrelevant as if you know, Russia or China had, had, had actually vetoed. I guess the dilemma is much more acute in some cases than others, but it must be a common challenge. So I, I guess the sort of question is, what price should diplomats be prepared to pay for council unity? Uh, I, I don't know if you could say something about that. Well, I think this is a real dilemma, and it's one that's likely to get worse for Linda Thomas-Greenfield and for Biden over cases such as Myanmar, if cooperation with China doesn't deliver some concrete results on the ground. I think everyone agrees that if you go back to the uh, you know, initial weeks after the Myanmar coup, to focus on this example, it would have been very foolish uh, if Western countries had tabled resolutions 
that China would obviously veto. For example, a resolution calling for an arms embargo against the um, uh, Burmese military. And I think actually it was quite impressive diplomacy to keep the Chinese on board, supporting statements, you know, calling for restraint by the military, calling for a return to some sort of political process. That, you know, that was a short-term win. The problem is that the generals in Myanmar have said that they are quite willing to ignore any punishment from the Security Council. They have continued to use violence against civilians, pretty much regardless of whatever is being said in New York. The only diplomatic strategy that the UN has really got behind is endorsing ASEAN's efforts to mediate a way out of the crisis. But ASEAN is not that likely to succeed. And so at some point, I think this sort of cooperation will break down. And at some point, there will be voices, uh, especially amongst the Western members of the council, saying that it is time to table a resolution calling for an arms embargo. It is time to try and ratchet up the pressure um, on the military. But it's at that moment that we will see cooperation amongst the P5 start to crumble. And in recent weeks, we've been hearing messages from diplomats in the Security Council that they're they're feeling that the surprisingly good relations with the Chinese and Russians over Myanmar are starting to crack, especially as the Chinese and Russians conclude that actually the military coup has worked and that it is pretty unlikely that it's going to be reversed. So this is a dilemma that is playing out in real time. And uh, I would, if I were a betting man, say that we will probably see uh, a breakdown over Myanmar and the Security Council at some point this year. Richard, can I push a little bit further on that? I mean, you, you watch the council so closely and have been doing for so many years. I mean, that's the sort of dilemma that council members, diplomats face at the moment in Myanmar. But do you think there's a sort of general rule that you would draw about sort of when it is time to worry less about unity and sort of worry more about signaling or being more ambitious in what you put what you push for i think the the problem that overshadows all of this is that everyone is also aware that the biden administration and most of its allies are not going to intervene in somewhere like myanmar in the way that the clinton administration intervened in kosovo in 99, after Security Council options were exhausted. Now, this is an administration which has said that it does not want to get bogged down in more foreign wars. So, you know, the US doesn't have the leverage that in the early post-Cold War period period it had, um, because it could always threaten unilateral use of force. Knowing that that isn't really on the table, I think other powers are a lot more willing to push back against the US to try and keep it contained. And after all, I think the Russians feel that they rather successfully managed the the Syrian conflict over 10 years in the Security Council, keeping the US and its its allies contained uh, in New York. So I, I think we have to recognize that we're in a world where council diplomacy is less and less likely to render sort of clear, decisive outcomes um, because all the powers are much more balanced than they were back in the day. So probably a good thing that US military intervention isn't sort of looming in the background on most crises, but that does have implications for 
Security Council diplomacy. Yeah, I mean, I'm not advocating a military intervention in Myanmar. Let me make that quite clear. But if you think back to 2011 um, and the Libya crisis, I mean, you know, a decade ago, when the Obama administration decided that it was willing to use military force in Libya, actually a lot of other countries you know, got into line behind that because they wanted at least to be you know, part of the decision-making process around it. And I, I don't think you would sort of see a similar response today. Richard, if I could turn the focus to China, you, you said a bit earlier that China has become much more active diplomatically, much more active in New York. Can you say a bit more? Do you see most of the focus at the council level? Are they engaging more broadly and investing more in other UN agencies and bodies? Tell us how you see this uh, occurring. Well, this has been a slow process of China gaining influence, which has accelerated in the last few years. You know, really until 2017, 2018, the Chinese were generally very cautious around the Security Council, but they were gradually building up influence in development committees, in other parts of the UN system, which frankly, Western diplomats were not paying very much attention to. And China has definitely gained a lot of leverage over the development debate in New York, you know, trying to push the UN to endorse the Belt and Road Initiative, for example. China has become more assertive in the Security Council over the last few years. Um, I don't think there is a grand Chinese strategy to take control of the council. Um, you sometimes see sort of scaremongering pieces about this, but we don't see that in New York. But China is a lot more willing um, simply to stand up for its interests in council debates than, than it was before. Now, that can take some quite odd forms. Uh, a couple of years ago, the Chinese threatened to veto uh, a standard resolution um, on Afghanistan, renewing the mandate for the UN political presence in Afghanistan. And the Chinese said they would veto it, not because of, of any substantive issue, but because the preamble to the resolution did not praise the Belt and Road. And clearly someone in, in the mission here or someone in Beijing felt that it was very important for public relations reasons to get that language in. So, you know, China's engagement is quite unpredictable, but, uh, you know, Beijing is positioning itself as a champion of UN peacekeeping. Uh, the Chinese are actually convening a, uh, a big debate um, this month in the Security Council um, on the future of UN peacekeeping and keeping peacekeepers safe in dangerous environments. And it's also notable that the Chinese are gradually pushing back on discussions of human rights in the Security Council. And the Chinese and Russians are saying more and more firmly that there is a Human Rights Council in Geneva. That is the place to discuss human rights. And the Security Council in New York is where you talk about sort of much more traditional security issues. And that upsets a lot of our assumptions from the last 30 years about um, the council's you know, growing purview over issues like human rights. So it is very disruptive. So, Richard, as you sort of describe, China seems to be acting from a position of a sort of security in itself as a, as a rising and increasingly influential power. I remember some years ago when I was based in New York, there was this idea that sort of China was acting from this very secure position and Russia, in a way, was acting from a position of insecurity, sort of disruptive looking for ways to sort of be more obstructive on the Security Council. Do you think that still still holds? I mean, how would you describe Russian New York diplomacy? I think the Russians, you know, the Russians ultimately are very comfortable with the fact that they have the veto 
And there is a contrast between the Russians and Chinese on this. The Chinese don't like using their veto. They do still worry about the reputational cost. The Russians will use their veto quite happily. And I think it's fair to say that until recently, the, the Russians were sort of happy to sit back and mainly take a negative approach in the council on issues that matter to them, such as Syria, blocking Western action, but you know, not really presenting any sort of alternatives. We're starting to see some changes there. The Russians have started to convene a lot of meetings with people from civil society talking about the situation in Ukraine, talking about the situation in Crimea, trying to sell their vision of um, what is happening in Ukraine to the UN. Uh, they've been convening meetings and you know, using every opportunity they can to criticize Western sanctions policy. And they're actually becoming much more full-throated in their criticisms of the US and US allies. Richard, if I can ask us to step back a bit from the, the geopolitics and the great power dynamics and, and ask you, as Guterres puts himself forward for this next term, do you think that there still is space for a secretary general to make a difference as an individual? I think there still is. And I think we shouldn't overestimate uh, the personal leverage of any secretary general. And even, you know, even a stellar one like Kofi Annan found that when he sort of ended up in a dispute with the US over Iraq, his own political space and own political standing came under a lot of pressure. But I think the Guterres does have an opportunity now, um, working with the Biden administration, uh, to play a stronger role in personal diplomacy, knowing that the US may have his back in a way that it didn't in Trump times. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that he should fly to Damascus and, and solve the Syrian war overnight? I mean, clearly it doesn't. I mean, that is far beyond the capacities of, of any SG. But I think in places like Yemen, uh, for example, where the US has said that it really does want to see the UN peace process work, he could invest more. Uh, in Libya, I think it's time for him to invest in making the ceasefire and political arrangements that have been set up work. In Afghanistan, he faces a different situation. As as Richard said at the outset, you know, the US is pulling out of Afghanistan. Who will be left behind to try and support the government? It will, to a considerable degree, be UN aid workers and UN advisors. But I think that Guterres you know, has to invest you know, almost as a moral issue in, in the Afghan case in trying to ensure that you don't see a complete collapse there. And I think the US would be supportive of that. And actually, other powers might well be supportive of that, too. So I think there is space. I, I do think that to take on any of those challenges, you have to be willing to accept a pretty high level of risk. And you have to be willing to accept that, you know, many, many UN diplomatic initiatives end in failure. Failure is part of the job. Um, but nonetheless, uh, if a Secretary General, especially in his second term, isn't willing to take some of those risks, uh, you know, then he just really isn't making the most of the position. So, Richard, could I maybe follow that up with a with a with another kind of big big picture question? Uh, you know, after the end of the Cold War, there was this sort of formula for peace deals. Major powers would lean on the conflict parties with sanctions, diplomacy, you know, maybe even the threat of force. They'd push them into power sharing deals that would buy time for elections and then ideally peace building. I mean, this is a gross simplification. There were obviously lots of challenges to the model, but broadly speaking, that was it. And then over the past, you know, at least the past decade sort of major powers can't agree 
there's been these sort of bitter rivalries, not only among big powers, but also among kind of more assertive regional powers who meddle in conflicts. Plus, you have on many battlefields, uh, jihadist militants uh, as, as protagonists uh, who you know, it's hard to negotiate with because often they don't want to talk or they're seen as beyond the pale. And sort of part of the UN struggles, part of the UN Secretariat struggles, the Secretary General struggles is sort of adapting to that reality. Overall, sort of how, how do you think it's it's going and, and can Guterres sort of do structural things within the Secretariat to sort of move along reforms that can help the, the UN adapt? I mean, I think Guterres has actually recognised that reality. And, you know, we're talking about big picture geopolitics, but he's also put in place reforms over the last few years to try and make UN aid agencies uh, focus more on conflict prevention, often at a very local level. And the results of that are still evolving quite slowly. You know, development work is is inherently quite slow moving. But it does seem that UN officials leading development teams in countries where there are no peacekeepers are putting more time and more energy into looking at conflict risks and how to mitigate them. Simultaneously, there's a lot more discussion now around the UN about how to deal with climate change and how that links into conflict. So I, I do think the organization as a whole is evolving to address the changing threat environment, but very slowly, and also with really a focus more on local conflicts and conflicts that fall below the geopolitical radar. And sitting in New York, we we naturally get hooked on the Myanmar's, the Syria's, the, the issues that divide the P5. But I think Guterres's team and UN officials more generally would say, if you if you look back in about five years' time and see the work we've been doing at a more grassroots level, uh, you will see positive trends in how we're engaging with conflict. Richard, I think that's a, a great note to end on. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much. So, Naz, what did you take away? I think I was most struck both in what Richard has recently published and also in his conversation with us today by the challenge of trying to make a pitch for leadership at a moment when everyone seems to think visionary leadership is impossible. Sort of how do you present a story about what you want to do over the next five years? How do you try to convince the world that there is space for multilateralism and collective action when there is so much pessimism about the very possibility that the institutions of the United Nations or the leading states at the Security Council have the capacity to work together on any initiatives of consequence. Yeah, absolutely. And and also this sort of age old, but, but now I think really acute dilemma of do you speak out, but then no one powerful listens, everyone's ignoring you. And, you know, you speaking out loses some of its currency. Or do you sort of try and persuade behind closed doors and then everyone thinks you're not actually do, doing anything? You know, when I was thinking about this podcast, I actually thought back to the episode that we did at the beginning of the year when you and Rob, uh, Rob Malley, who's now Biden's Iran envoy, but was then Crisis Group's president and hosted the podcast. Uh, you both had me on as a guest and we talked about the conflicts to watch in 2021 in the year ahead. And I think one of the things that we talked about towards the end of that episode was how little the UN came up in the conversation. And it did come up very little 
But I was sort of reflecting ahead of this episode, how much do we, how much does crisis groups still look to the UN as a primary actor in preventing and resolving conflicts? And, you know, I think despite all the difficulties, as the conversation with Richard suggested, I think we do a lot. And obviously the UN plays very different roles now in different places. If you look at the Middle East, where it's leading peace efforts in Libya, Yemen, Syria, obviously with with varying, with enormously varying uh, degrees of success, likely to assume a much more central role in Afghanistan, again, one with huge challenges. Although, you know, in none of these places are there actually sort of UN peacekeepers. Then in Africa, it's sort of the opposite. You have these big peace operations and peacekeepers, which I think we can safely say in most cases tend to stop things getting worse, ideally by time for political efforts, but then sort of become part of the furniture. They're difficult to withdraw. And the diplomacy itself is in Africa increasingly led by the African Union or by sub-regional organizations. And then, you know, again, there's, there's sort of a lot of quiet UN diplomacy, even beyond the big conflicts, like the, the stuff we talked about in Bolivia 18 months ago. And I think we'd like to see, for example, more of a UN role in, in Venezuela and, and, and other places. So I think generally, you know, it's just much more of a, a kind of a mixed bag that the UN plays. It's just sort of not the the centerpiece of peace negotiations in a way that, you know, that maybe it was or people thought it was 20 years ago. You know, sometimes it's leading, sometimes it's working with or, or supporting others. And I think broadly speaking, sort of bring pragmatic as Guterres has about the role the UN plays, not always needing to be the lead. I think it's mostly speaking, you know, you can nitpick about different cases, but broadly speaking, I think that's the right approach. And, you know, it's also, of course, just sort of a a reflection of geopolitical reality. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find more of Crisis Group's work at crisisgroup.org or follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producers, Maeve Francis and Ida Holly Namby. And thank you especially to our listeners. Please do leave us a question, a comment, a rating or review, and we'll help you'll join us again next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.